I feel quite privileged to be alive in this moment. I think we have an opportunity to change our system and change how we interact with our living systems and not many humans have had that opportunity right through history. So I think be grateful for that you're around in this moment. You're watching an energy transition happen, but you're also going to see one happen in agriculture and other industries as well. And that's, that's a wonderful thing to be alive through. Keep up the hope. Try and find the good stories. Our, our media is cr- crowded with all the negative stories, but that sells. Outrage sells. That's the world we're in. Go beyond that mainstream and look in the shadows. That's where the hope is and that's where all the people are that are doing amazing things. So um, keep your mind clean by doing that. Don't get it sucked into these other narratives. You're listening to Climactic Live, a collection of the best events from across Australia's climate community, adapted to podcast by the producers of the Climactic Collective to suggest an event or to share your skills as an audio producer or editor, get in touch at hello at climactic.fm. This event was adapted by Lee Baker, a sustainability consultant who writes on the regenerative economy at balance3.com.au. Beyond Zero Emissions is an independent Australian research organization developing detailed plans for how Australia can develop a zero carbon economy. Their most recent work includes the Million Jobs Plan, and their Zero Carbon Communities platform. In September 2020, Beyond Zero Emissions hosted an online discussion group to follow up on the ABC's Fight for Planet A, Our Climate Challenge. Their star-studded speakers list included comedian and documentary producer Craig Rukesell, who made Fight for Planet A, alongside filmmaker Damon Gamow, and writer-director of the movie 2040. Also on the panel were Jess Pangiers, a land use solutions expert, Imogen Jubb, BZE's Zero Carbon Communities Manager, and the event was hosted by Amy Meehan, Hunter Valley Region Entrepreneur and Climate Leader. Enjoy! Welcome everyone to our monthly discussion group for Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Amy Meehan and I will be your host for this exciting Fight for Planet A event. I'm a Grimmillaroy Irish-Australian living in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales, and I volunteer for Beyond Zero Emissions Hunter Region. The format for this evening is that each of our panellists will take a turn to talk about their approach to climate action and respond to the newest work, uh, Fight for Planet A on ABC and iView. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and be thankful to the wisdom and care of our ancestors and custodians past and present on whatever Indigenous country in Australia you are tonight. I'm thankful for the ancestors on the Warramai land that I grew up on and the Wanarua land where I now live and work. I thank my ancestors and elders for the values of gender parity, uh, natural localised democracy, of not only people but all creatures without a voice through totemic systems and song lines. I thank them for caring for this land for 120,000 years, despite unresolved sovereignties. I also want to thank Beyond Zero Emissions and our speakers Craig, Damon, Jess and Imogen for honouring the Uluru Statement by including a First Nations voice here tonight. All voices from Australia's diverse and multicultural communities are needed. And each time I do an acknowledgement, um, my learnings have changed. But one thing I have resolved on is to also acknowledge another minority, and that is our coal, oil and gas workers, and the communities like the Hunter who are actually dependent on fossil and hydrocarbon economies. We have all benefited from the energy and technology of their work, and so I hope that together 
we can sympathise with and support their challenges as well as our own. So let's get started. Our first speaker is Craig Rucastle, writer and host of the newest TV series and the reason why we're, we've been drawn to this event perhaps, Fight for Planet A on ABC. Known so well for his various comic stunts on The Chaser, humorous education of our consumer rights on The Checkout and of course the series that kicked off uh, his environmental focus, The War on Waste. Craig is also a visual quantifier using stunts that demonstrate the extent of our impact uh, that many of us would not even know about otherwise. And somehow he packages it all to include a huge belly laugh. So please welcome Craig Rucastle. Thank you very much, Amy. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. Thank you for having me here today to talk about this. The Five Planet Day was a show we really wanted to address because I think War and Waste was successful, but we started to see waste was kind of getting conflated with climate issues, not just by in the general public, but also at the level of Prime Minister. We'd see our Prime Minister go to the United Nations to a climate summit and talk about plastic and that kind of thing. So we really wanted to get people to engage with it. And it's a difficult one. It's a much more difficult thing to engage with. And I think we had a sense of there were a lot of misconceptions out there. It's interesting how many people have come up to me since the show went to and go, I thought we were one of the best, which still blows me away. We think of Australia as being this beautiful nation, having such great wilderness and that kind of thing, that people conflated that with we must be really good when it comes to climate change, rather than the reality, of course, which is that we're one of the worst when it comes to climate change in the world. What I wanted to start off doing in that show was probably much broader, and it became much narrower because we had to deal with a lot of misconceptions that are out there. Firstly, whether or not Australia is bad or has a lot to do. And secondly, the biggest misconception that we're all battling against is the misconception that we can't make a difference. It's the actual narrative that's been set up by our government for many years is that Australia can't really make a difference. We're quite small. We're 1.3%. We're tiny. We can't make a difference, which is an argument that falls down on so many levels, uh, particularly when you look at our overall footprint per person, but also when you look at the fact that we're still kind of top 20 polluters in the world when it comes to this. But it's interesting how that narrative also is the same one that, that we often use as individuals. You can be somebody who rails against the government and says, no, we should be doing something with government, but still go, well, I can't do anything. And we wanted to also look at whether you could do anything as well as an individual, and not, not as an individual, but as one of many. I think that's the tough thing is in the same way that you, Australia says, we're really small. You go, yeah, but if all those small nations together are the biggest part of our contribution to emissions, in as much the same way as you go, <clears throat> but I'm just an individual. Yes, but all of us individuals together are a massive part of our footprint, so we can actually make a difference, hopefully, in some way to that. So, yeah, when we're talking about ideas and opportunities, it's interesting. This year has been, I think, a really challenging one. And hello to anyone who's watching this from Melbourne. I know you guys are in the middle of a terrible time, but I think it's been a terribly challenging time for so many of us. But I think it has brought some opportunities up. Like, it's been interesting to... There were brief periods where this year we've kind of found ourselves working together across party lines, listening to experts, being told that what we do matters in solving a problem. And it's an interesting model that might also be successful for actually tackling climate change. So I think there's hopefully some positives that we've got out of that. I think there's a big problem as well. I think there's a very intentional ploy at the moment by certain people slash ministers of government to equate the drop in emissions that's happening with the lockdown and with COVID and suggest, see, you do get drop emissions, but it's when you're locked in your house and when you don't have economic activity and when you lose your jobs and that kind of thing. 
And that's the narrative that's been used for so many years to deny activity in this area. And it's so good to see BZE has been out at the forefront talking about the fact, no, we're at a point now where we can get so many jobs, we can get so much activity, we can still be having the positives of cleaner air and lower emissions and all of these kind of things whilst also having people in jobs and extra jobs and that kind of thing. And I think that's the really big challenge that we have is to try and make people see that. And I think it's, it's great that things like the million jobs is, a, is an example of that, that get people actually to, to work on that. Because it is, there's so many great opportunities there. There's so many technologies there now that we can really answer a, a lot of the challenges that we face. I'm not a scientist, but the reason I'm not a scientist doing this show is because the problem is not in science. My background is in political science, and that's where the problem is. The problem is in politicians and us as people. That's where the actual problem is. And we're now in a position where I think we really can solve this problem. It's exciting. Whether it's be at the home level, you can do so much. The community can do so much. Schools can do so much. Businesses. And the interesting thing about this is I've changed my concept of how, you know, change comes about. It doesn't just generally come from the top and from the federal government. It probably is going to come from all of those groups underneath making change, and then finally they'll join in at the end and take credit for it, no doubt. But we can still hopefully get that change there. So there are a lot of great opportunities there, and it's been great to see people coming up and saying, we think we can make a difference. It's so important. It's important that we all all get behind this and listen to the experts here tonight so that we can actually make a change for this. So cheers. Thanks for that, Craig, and thanks for the laughs and the thought of your wonderful work and the team at the ABC as well. And may the stories and laughs continue to motivate our path. And now I'll introduce our next speaker is Damon Gamow, who is a positive vision documentary maker who has extended the impact of his film's work with a Facebook group and support of regenerative initiatives shown in the film. Damon is known for two of the top four highest grossing Australian documentaries in history, That Sugar Film, and the most recent film, of course, 2040. This year, Damon was nominated for the New South Wales Australian of the Year Award for his 2040 regeneration movement. Please welcome Damon Gamow. Thank you, Amy. And I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the lands of the Bundjalung Nation of the Arakwal people and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And just wanted to acknowledge Craig and all his team and Stephen Oliver and everyone at ABC for putting on such a terrific show that has reached a really wide audience. And more than ever, we need storytellers that are disseminating this science and putting it in ways that are accessible and entertaining and that we try and permeate the culture with it instead of just leaving it in these academic circles. So congratulations to everyone there. I thought I might just quickly explain for a lot of people that might be on the panel tonight that are quite new to climate change or just understanding the complexities of some of it. Uh, I think we all know that we need to stop putting fossil fuels into the atmosphere. That's why we talk a lot about shutting down coal power stations and switching to renewables. Some people might not be aware that even if we did that tomorrow, if we all went to renewable energy, we all had electric cars and they were all run by renewables, we've still locked ourselves into centuries of warming because of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. So while we stop putting them up there, we also need to take them out of the atmosphere at the same time, and that is known as sequestration or drawing down carbon dioxide. But the third area that often doesn't get talked about is the fact that we need to preserve the areas that already have carbon in them right now. There's around 2 trillion metric tonnes of carbon stored in our forests and in our wetlands and in our peat bogs and in our mangroves, and if we just released only 10% of those, we would see our parts per million go up by 100 
So it's really important that all those three things have to happen simultaneously for us to have a shot of getting through this. And as I'm sure Jess will probably talk to this in a second, we think of deforestation and we all think of the Amazon and we think of Indonesia, but Australia is doing appallingly in terms of our deforestation, especially in Queensland, New South Wales. So if we do get to these renewables and lower our emissions, it's really kind of we're chasing our tail if we're continuing to cut down these forests and put more carbon into the atmosphere, affect the water cycle of the planet, which has a huge impact as well. So it's just important to understand this is not a simple problem. People call it a wicked problem for a reason because all these things have to happen at the same time. That said, though, I would say there are some really wonderful things going on. That's what I've spent the last five years of my life trying to find the solutions, trying to find and meet the people that are doing their best to get these problems solved. And even though we don't probably get the leadership we need in this country at a federal level, we often pull our hair out because we don't have a clear climate policy, we don't have a clear energy target, we're talking about a gas-led recovery right now, which is kind of madness, that there are wonderful things going on, especially at the state level, community level, schools. I think all of our states now have pledged goals of 2050 to be zero emissions, and some of those states will get there even faster. South Australia, for example, will probably get there by 2030, Tasmania have pledged to be 200% renewables by 2040, and we see only recently that New South Wales, their Liberal Environment Minister, has created some renewable energy zones, which are going to power millions of homes in New South Wales. And only last week, the Victorian Energy Minister pledged that they are going to rebuild after COVID with lots of renewable energy investment. So there are good stories happening, even if we're not getting at the federal level. Uh, And again, globally, there is just so much momentum in terms of renewables right now. There was a report even out today that said of all the new energy capacity that we built right around the world last year, 67% of that was solar and wind, and only 25% of it was fossil fuels. So there is a huge shift. All the big investment companies, the Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, these kind of groups aren't investing in fossil fuels anymore. So there is definitely a transition underway. But there's still a lot to do. We're still investing far too much in polluting industries and technologies, SUVs, these types of things. So we do have to do that work. But really, as I said, if we stop doing that, we all go to renewables, we're still going to deal with this carbon that's already in our atmosphere. And I think as we explored in 2040, one of the most exciting areas we can do that is in biological solutions. So in regenerative agriculture, for example, right now our agriculture industry emits huge amounts of carbon dioxide and the way we dig and plough our soils, remove those trees, but we're also putting lots of chemicals on our land, we're losing the water in our landscape, so it's really a great time to start regenerating those. And there's just some really exciting things going on from farmers around the world, different initiatives now around planting agroforestry or planting trees that we can eat. There's now about 600 perennial vegetables that we can eat and plant that have huge nutrition, but they're also sequestering huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. So we really need to rethink some of our food system, move away from these monocultures, just planting rows and rows of soy or corn or sugar, and really look at diverse systems because nature does thrive on diversity. And it provides nutrition for us, uh, keeps water in the soil. And, of course, we're taking that carbon out of the atmosphere every time we grow trees and pulling it back into the soil, which is what we need to do. And the other great area there which I talked about was in seaweed in the film. Seaweed's just an absolutely miraculous solution. It's um, not talked about often enough, but we're going to hear a lot more about it in the next 10 or 15 years. Australia is about to launch its own national seaweed industry. We have so much water, but we don't have any commercial-scale farms. One just about to launch in Port Lincoln, because the South Australian government there want to feed some of this seaweed, the asparagopsis that Craig looked at in the, in the series, to give it to the cows, which will lower their methane emissions. But apart from that, uh, the seaweed can be used. People are making clothes out of it. 
McDonald's have just ordered millions and millions of straws made of seaweed that you just put in hot water and they dissolve completely so you can make a plastic out of them. Plus, once we plant these big seaweed forests in the ocean, they alkalise the water and create these beautiful habitats for our fish to return again. So we can just create employment, health, abundance, protein and sequester carbon at the same time if we plant these giant kelp forests. So there's lots of scientists looking into that right now. I would say, though, that ultimately I see this as an opportunity. I think a lot of time we've told stories about climate change and we've used language around sacrifice and depravity and the things we have to give up. But I can categorically say that there is a better world waiting for us on the other side of this climate crisis if we can get through it. Much better food and healthier foods, stronger communities, cleaner energy, uh, healthier water, more abundance and biodiversity, stronger communities. It's kind of what we're all after. So I think the more we can tell stories about the benefits that are awaiting us, the more we're going to motivate people and get them to take action and get involved. And we've been doing a listening exercise around Australia for the last four months, speaking to hundreds of Australians about how they've been through the bushfires, how they were during COVID, but more importantly, what kind of Australia they want as we emerge from this time. And it's been really encouraging to hear how many things we actually have in common. And people right now really are yearning for stronger communities. They want their greener hills again. They want the rivers flowing. They want action on climate change. All these things that we think we're so divided on, we actually have a lot of similarities. And I think that's something we should all celebrate, reach out to each other, have more and more conversations because it's right there and this is that opportunity. As Craig mentioned, though, we know what's blocking us. We have one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world now. We have all sorts of issues around uh, governance and democracy, but there are things being done in that area. Uh, in fact, I've been researching that recently and there's some extraordinary things going on around the world. Have a look at Taiwan if you get the chance, what they're doing with their democracy right now. They're live streaming policy discussions, live streaming lobbyists, which is quite incredible. And they're even putting little robots into rivers and into the skies and they're making policy based on that data. So if a river starts getting polluted or drops its level, then they'll make a policy decision based on that need. Or if the air gets too dirty, they'll make a policy on that need. So really losing all the ideology, just using the best of science to make a decision to move forward, which I think is really inspiring. I think this is an extraordinary time. There's lots of big decisions to make as we emerge from COVID, but I think we've got an opportunity to fundamentally transform how we interact with each other and all of our living systems. And if we do that, then we'll deal with the climate problem and uh, much better lives for all of us. Thank you, Damon. For continuing the support of so many organisations that sequester carbon and bring the, the 20 vision to life. Our next speaker is Jess Panagiris, who you will probably remember appeared in the third episode of Fight for Planet A, helping demonstrate the rate and impact of tree clearing in Australia. Jess has over a decade's experience working across environmental advocacy, law, policy and education. At the time of filming, Jess was working for the Wilderness Society, but she has also worked for Greenpeace and is a Rose Scholar. Thanks for the Zoom hands, everyone. And thanks, Amy. And um, I'm calling in tonight from Gadigal Land. And I guess we're here partly because climate change is bloody scary. I know that sometimes when I think about it and when my friends think about it and my family, it's very scary. And it's easy to shut down and to think that it's too late and there's nothing we can do or the solutions are out of our hands. But I suppose the really good news is that there's still a pathway to meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, to staying within 1.5 degrees, avoiding the worst impacts of global warming. And all of those scenarios that have us doing that all involve massive action in the land sector. So that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. 
and I will focus on the exciting opportunity that exists in the land, but I suppose first I did want to reiterate where we actually currently are in Australia and recite some of the pretty shocking statistics about where we are right now. So Australia currently has a massive deforestation problem. If you watched episode three of Fight for Planet A, you would have seen what deforestation looks like in the Australian context. So two massive bulldozers with a huge chain strung between them running through the forest and knocking down everything in its wake. And that's happening at scale across Australia, such that we're now, as Damon said, we're on a global list of deforestation hotspots alongside places like the Amazon and Borneo. It's killing 50 million native animals in New South Wales and Queensland alone every year. It's responsible for around 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And it's an area the size of the MCG that we're losing every two minutes. And this is in a context where Australia's already cleared or severely degraded 50% of the forests and bushland that were here at the time of colonisation. Australia is the second worst country in the world for biodiversity loss, and we have the worst rate of mammal extinction. And some of the animals that we love the most, like the koala, are actually on track to be extinct in the wild in our lifetime if we don't change course. So that's all really bad and the good news is we can stop it and there's four things we need to do to both stop all the bad stuff and kickstart the good stuff. And so I just want to talk about those four things. So the first thing is we need strong state land clearing laws because that's the only thing that's worked in the past. So the reason we're currently in the terrible state we're in is because when Campbell Newman was Premier of Queensland, he undid the state's land clearing laws and we saw like a tripling of the land clearing rate almost overnight. New South Wales followed, other states have followed by weakening their laws, including Western Australia. So we actually know in the past it's worked to bring Australia's deforestation rate down and we need to do it again. And in fact, in Queensland in mid-2018, the Queensland government did pass new laws. And they did that because the community demanded it. And so one of the key things I wanted to say tonight is that as individuals, we can all use our power as citizens to demand these things of our state governments, and it works. Those laws were passed in mid-2018, and we do expect deforestation rates to come right down as a result. Related to that second, we can demand strong federal environment protection laws because most of this deforestation that's occurred in the last couple of years has all been enabled under the federal laws that we have. And again, our federal MPs work for us. So we can demand that they do better. We can say, look, these forests and bushlands, a healthy climate, a healthy landscape belongs to all of us. So it's actually your job to protect it for us. And you can demand that of your local MP. So, so we've done two of the solutions. There's Third key solution is we can demand that the corporations that sell us food guarantee that the food they're selling us doesn't come from deforestation. And this is something that's totally within our control as consumers to demand. So in Australia, we found that the majority of deforestation and land clearing in Queensland was linked to beef production. Who's buying the beef? It's our supermarkets and our fast food chains. Who buys the beef from them? We do. So we can contact our supermarkets and our fast food chains and we can ask them to commit to zero deforestation sourcing. 
And that's not my idea, that's something that's happened around the world. Marks and Spencers, for example, in the UK has committed to completely eliminate deforestation from the products they sell. If Marks and Spencers can do it, Coles and Woolies can do it, McDonald's can do it, and that's something that we as consumers can demand. And I tell you what, if all of the big supermarkets and fast food chains in Australia committed to zero deforestation sourcing, we would go so far to fixing Australia's deforestation problem. So that's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is we can accelerate land restoration. And this is so exciting because in Australia, we're on a global list of places where you could see the most carbon sequestered in the land globally. And if we do it right, if we sequester carbon in a way that where we're also restoring biodiverse ecosystems, we, we got Reputex, which is a carbon firm, to model the amount of land carbon that you could save if you ended land clearing and put some money into carbon sequestration. And the numbers were pretty staggering. If you just end land clearing alone and invest $5 billion in sequestration, you can save up to 850 million tonnes of carbon by 2030. If you do that in a way that's good for biodiversity, you can start to restore wildlife habitat, you can create jobs for traditional owners and local communities and landholders. And in fact, to give slightly personal story, but in 2017, my colleague Glenn Walker and I decided, we looked at this modelling and we thought, we want to see this come to life. How do we do it? And so we spent six months going and talking to land carbon experts around the country, including Professor Will Steffen, and we came up with this idea for a land restoration fund where basically governments would pay for biodiverse land sequestration that was also good for communities. We pitched the idea to the Queensland government. We talked to the Aboriginal Carbon Fund. They liked it. The Queensland government liked it. They committed to it as part of their 2017 election commitment. And I'm really pleased to say that last week, the first tranche of funding for that program went out and there's now $93 million and 680 jobs being created in projects that store carbon, protect wildlife habitat, are good for the reef. And so it's totally possible and it's happening and it's up to all of us to use our power as citizens and consumers to force our governments and corporations to fix this and to create the kind of Australia that we want. Thanks so much, Jess. All those four points and your perspectives and insights on land use. I think we can add a few things to our list of potential actions or definite actions amongst all the things that we hope to do or are doing to care for land and culture and our earth. So our next speaker is our very own Imogen Jubb from Beyond Zero Emissions. Now, Imogen Jubb is the National Manager of Beyond Zero Emissions Zero Carbon Communities Program. She has authored the BZE Zero Carbon Communities Handbook and established the Zero Carbon Communities Investment Reference Group. Imogen has previously worked teaching Indigenous communities science, as well as on she's worked on climate science communications and solutions with the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Bureau of Meteorology and National Peak Body, CSIRO. So please take it away, Imogen, and tell us all about what you can do in your community. Thanks very much, Amy, and for Craig, Jess and Damon. It's really amazing to hear all your words of encouragement and support and solutions. It's an honour to be speaking with you all today and to have such a large and diverse audience from all around the country. I'm speaking from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, 
who are deep in lockdown at the moment, but we're getting through it. One of my themes for tonight's talk, I wanted to talk a little bit about steps that people take because Jess, Craig and Damon and Amy and I have all been working on this for quite a long time, but all of us started with one first step in this direction. I was thinking about mine and my first recollection of climate change was in my high school classroom. I remember a poster about greenhouse gases, probably the greenhouse effect it would have been called at the time. And I remember coming home and getting really vigilant about turning off lights and turning off the heater and getting really cranky with my family when they left heaters on or left lights on. It was probably the first step I learned in like the psychology of climate change and the psychology of working with humans who don't necessarily have the same passions or share the same understandings that you do. It's not as simple as you think. But even that first step was really important. And I know probably the people in the audience today, some of you who will have been working on this stuff for years, and some of you will be new to this. And I think it's important to think about the first actions that you take and that every action you take leads to the next one. And that's really important. But I've come a long way and I have, you know, as, as my steps have collected, I've learned that the systemic changes to climate change are really important. And it was one of the reasons I was drawn to working with Beyond Zero Emissions. BZE's approach is to lay out the steps required to deliver systemic change across different sectors like energy and transport and industry and waste as well as economically and socially. And I was really drawn to key aspects of BZE's work, including a few things. One was that research and evidence form the basis of all its work. Another was that the organisation runs on the passion and skill of volunteers. They're a really core part of the organisation and that volunteers contribute their expertise to the organisation and to the work that goes behind it, and I really value that. And it has a really clear focus on practical solutions and the actions that we can take here and now. So my role with Beyond Zero Emissions is to support zero carbon communities across the nation. Zero carbon communities are all sorts of people. They're groups, they're friends, they're clubs. Some of them are business and industry collections. Some of them are investors and councils. And they can be working together or they can be working as their own little teams to reduce carbon emissions in their local area. But not just to reduce carbon emissions, they all have positive spin-off benefits. They increase people's capacity to engage as citizens and to form networks and support in their area. All of the actions around climate change have heaps of co-benefits socially and heaps of co-benefits economically as well. And these things don't exist in isolation and communities know that and they really are the lived experience of what putting these solutions in practice looks like. I guess an example of another step I took along the way before I started working with BZE is my kids were at the local kinder and I'd worked on climate change for a long time but I'd never done anything that had actually demonstrably reduced emissions as a project and I was like, right, I want to do something that I can say has actually reduced emissions. So I teamed up with a few other parents at the local kinder and we worked on a partnership to set up a sustainability committee and we worked with the local council to get some solar panels on the roof. And today, it's still the only demonstrable thing I can say that that has actually reduced emissions. But it was a really great project. It was a very small, a small team of people. But those small steps led to community-wide ambitions and networks of action and support systems, which are really, really important. So BZE developed Zero Carbon Communities. It's an initiative to help people like me in my local kinder and other people around the country take practical actions that get jobs, 
save your community money and reduce local emissions. So when I first started in this role, which was a few years ago, there were only a handful of zero carbon communities across the country. And the first of those was Zero Emissions Byron. And it was really inspiring to meet that group of people who were willing to take on a really audacious challenge. And BJD has always framed its research in that 10-year timeframe to show what is possible in 10 years. But even in the few years that I've been involved in this space, the challenge has been breaking down into smaller and smaller chunks and more achievable steps. And our network of communities has really grown. There are now close to 100 zero carbon communities all across Australia working on targets and strategy and actions and projects and community engagement. So we've developed a whole heap of resources to help communities to work towards these goals. We have a really recently updated guide that sets out a series of steps that you can take. We've reviewed community and council-wide actions. And I'm just going to show you one of our tools. So if you pop in the place where you live, it will pop up with this profile that shows the emissions of your local area or any given year. So you can see that it's breaking down waste in most places about 2 to 3%, so it's actually a really small proportion of the emissions problem. Transport is roughly about 15 to 30% in different communities. Gas can be anything from zero to a really high proportion. And then in almost every community, the electricity sector is the biggest chunk of the pie, and that is broken down, you can see, into residential, commercial and industrial areas. And an action that anyone could take today is to go and say, I'm going to switch my energy provider to 100% renewable or 100% green energy. And, you know, if everyone in your community did that overnight, you would reduce that to zero. So we have a lot of control over some of this, and a fix of it require more systemic patterns as well. But the point of zero carbon communities is to get local people to find local solutions that have those co-benefits to their local area. So Snapshot is a resource available for any local government area in Australia. So you can just plug in your details and find it. There's also this nifty little share button, which means you can put it on social media and ping your local MPs or your local councillors and start a discussion about how to get this down to zero, as well as having discussions about the jobs involved and the money that you'll save if you can stop spending it on electricity. So, yeah. There are so many opportunities available to people and the communities we all work with all have these shared values of making the places that they care about better. They want to make a difference in their local area and they want to make a better environment. They want to support better jobs and build better networks with the people in their community. And the BZA team working on our Diversifying the Hunt report, including Amy, are an example of one of these communities. And they understand better than anyone else the complex interactions between fossil fuels, between climate impacts like fire and drought and the jobs and caring for country. And they know better than anyone else how to implement those solutions that benefit the whole community. And people like these are found in all communities all across the country and more and more people are taking these first steps towards a broader vision for their patch. But better jobs are really part of the solution and my colleagues have been working really hard on our million jobs plan and it shows how we can restore the economy and rebuild our nation and retrofit our homes make them more comfortable, modernise our industries, build new skills and new opportunities to our communities and deliver a safer and more secure environment, society and economy. And in particular, rural and regional areas can really benefit for these jobs, particularly those in renewable power, setting up electric transport infrastructure and regenerating our land. Our zero-carbon communities and other networks we have also identified hundreds of shovel-ready projects 
that can help kickstart our journey towards a zero carbon society. And we're also partnering with investors who are really increasingly looking to support zero emissions projects and set up better funding pathways so that communities can take on these ambitions and realise them. So I love that BZE helps us all think big and understand what we can achieve and set the ambition to take it on. And our zero carbon communities play a really pivotal role in showing us how to implement and achieve all of this. They really make me feel super hopeful and super empowered. I think small groups of people setting those big visions are the brightest force for change that we have. And it continues to be a real privilege to work on this and work with communities all across the country. And I'm really in awe of all our collaborators and volunteers and our staff and supporters and, of course, all the zero carbon communities and the work that they achieve. So wherever and wherever you are, you can take your next step to getting involved in a local zero carbon community or in climate action in any way that suits you. Everyone has a really significant part to play and everyone has a really important skill to bring. So at BZE, you can volunteer, you can donate, you can sign our pledge, the Million Jobs Pledge, which I think has been shared. You can set up or join a zero carbon community network. Every step helps to tell your story and share your vision and find your people. And BZE are here to give you tools, resources, and a really big community of supporters along the way. Thanks so much, Imogen. And I'm really pleased to see that the zero carbon communities team have actually taken Beyond Zero's work and since the, the original 10-year-ago stationary energy plan and started to connect with communities and roll all this out so that we can actually start to see it. So thank you for your work and the whole ZCC team. So now it's my turn. I'm just going to talk for five minutes about the way I take climate action from my First Nations heritage and business perspective. And I've got to say, this is great yarning and the media that we're coming together to talk about and is kind of under the banner of, it's great yarning to see these two works and to start telling the stories in mainstream culture about the future that we want together. I think both of these screen works are different from the previous lot of films that were about climate change that were telling us about a lot of the problems and the new works were planned to actually get you to do more than just watch and then go back to your old habits because they've included these resources and they've kind of changed a bit of the mould. I also think that it's an important thing for the arts to start to innovate and tell these stories more often, just like I think Damon mentioned. It's so important to be able to visualise the future. Otherwise, it is actually really hard for our, our mainstream culture perhaps to imagine a better life without fossil fuel. So just a little bit of context about myself. I started out in retail and I've worked in arts, in government service and now in sustainability business innovation. And I suppose I learned from traditional custodians and I've been involved with permaculture for 10 years. And my partner Steve, who's an engineer, and I, we volunteer as Imogen Job mentioned for the Hunter branch of BZD and obviously that's a very heavily dependent fossil fuel community. And my aim for tonight is to empower you with more tools since all of these wonderful panellists have some tools that they're kind of rolling out that you can use to, to help you with change and from it's really from a, a, a business perspective. But first of all I suppose I also want to acknowledge the connections to our current circumstance with COVID. 
because the payoff of trauma is actually, it reveals parts about the system. And I know systems have been mentioned tonight, especially just saying politicians work for us and Damon talking about Singapore. And I think actually I've had many conversations and am going to continue to have conversations about democracy and Indigenous democracy because there's so much richness and possibility in the ways that we can actually change our democracy to feel less disempowered. I'd also say that trauma makes things really difficult to change because one can feel that there is so much risk to going back out into the world and that sort of applies to COVID for some people or even currently in lockdown, but also for First Nations. So the loss of work, the separation from family and the fear of death is a circumstance that actually goes between both COVID and our First Nations experience. But the other thing that is really good about trauma is that when you find out the gaps in the system, you can change them if you can get past the trauma. But with First Nations, we also have multiple systems that we can explore because we have a 120,000-year history of sustainable systems and practices. So I suppose to actually give you an example of how I take climate action and, and I apply some of these things, I want people to value knowledge even without uni degrees because some of the role that I play in our wonderful and very experienced professionals in the Hunter chapter is with my art, so use my critical thinking, to actually reconcile the new technologies rolled out through our old systems and actually question some of the ways that they are rolled out and actually try to come up with solutions that can cater to both the needs of the land but also the needs for energy. So, for instance, just recently the engineers and physicists and chemists from our chapter have been talking about reconciling deforestation that Jess and, and Craig demonstrated on Fight for Planet A with solar farms. And what we also tried to come up with were figures of calculating how we can cover the rooftops and cover the built surfaces instead of spreading out into fields to make that a priority before we head outwards and keep knocking trees down. And the final example, I suppose, is for Fight for Planet A, there's this wonderful table that Craig set up, and I really loved that, that, again, that kind of competition with yourself to try and identify what has the highest and lowest impact. And uh, amongst them, cheese and, and beef and asparagus from Mexico, but also kangaroo. And I suppose with kangaroo, it's the lowest impact meat but it's also something to recognise that if people want to do the right thing, we're also creating market signals that people will probably go and buy a lot of kangaroo. Now, in Indigenous systems, there is a quite elaborate system of not harvesting things so that they run out, uh, and that's a totem system. And in all these processes of questioning that I do, to actually strengthen solutions by including First Nations and questioning the principles because there's a lot of expertise, but there's not always multidisciplinary expertise. So I suppose the last thing I wanted to reveal is the tool that I think is just amazing, and perhaps Craig and, and Damon and Jess in her setting up of the Queensland proposition about forests and revegetation, is innovation skills. 
And innovation skills is something we've actually seen during COVID is really important to adapt quickly. And the surprising thing is that our government are actually investing in short courses at the moment. But you can actually do a five-week online course, either for free or for a very low price from many of our great universities in Australia. And what it does is when we feel that things are at risk and that we want to change, it's really hard to jump into the unknown. And what these tools of innovation and design strategy is actually the terminology that's thrown around at CSIRO, it's thrown around at universities and in business circles, is that it actually enables you to take that idea of what you think might be needed and to actually see if it's going to work without spending any money. And all you're spending is actually time to validate your idea, to run it past people, to hone that idea and perhaps to pitch it. So I would just love for for all of you to be empowered with all of the actions that are suggested tonight, but I, I actually think it would be fantastic if we all became innovators because I think we'll just go so much quickly towards the path that we need to be on. So now that you've heard from all of us, um, it's time for me to look at the questions for the panel. The first question is from Ada Chung. Why is Australia's emission so high per capita? Is it because of our huge landmass or are we just bad? I don't think we're bad. The main reason is because we have enormous amount of fossil fuels in our energy. That's probably the most clearest example of that. I think our land size sometimes counts against us in some ways of travel, but overall our land size could work in our benefit as well. We have a massive capacity to put in forests and regenerative farming and to put in many carbon sinks because of our land size. And because of our land size, we also have an extraordinary capacity to create so much renewable energy. So, no, our land size is not really the disadvantage we're facing. The thing that makes us particularly bad is our transport's not great. There's some other elements. But the main thing is just that we burn fossil fuels to create energy. Thanks, Ada, for that question. And thank you, Craig. So we have another question, which is from Sophia. What is your message to the CEOs of today's companies on their role, responsibility in the climate crisis? How important is their participation? I'd say to a CEO, get on board because the train's moving and everyone is shifting. A lot of companies around the world are shifting. And if you're not shifting, you're going to be left behind. I think we're seeing a lot of innovations right now, measuring investment so that people can actually see investment and see its climate risk. And once that gets out there, that's going to have a huge impact because suddenly you're going to be exposed to how vulnerable you are, fossil fuels you're using, what your supply chains are like, and that's going to shift things very quickly. So to their credit, uh, companies are probably the ones leading the way around the world. They're doing far more than most government. You've got incredible pledges from groups like Microsoft who are not only going to offset all their emissions and go 100% renewables, they're going to offset all the emissions they've generated since the 1970s. So that's a massive statement. Amazon's doing a very similar thing. So there is great leadership being shown in that sector. It's just unfortunately that a lot of governments around the world are lagging. I would encourage anyone who works to talk to their boss about this. You can do incredible things in your own workplace. And really, as Craig showed in the series, that's all we can do is look after our own little cell in this big organism. And if we get our cell healthy and do the right thing, then it connects up with the other healthy cells and we create a healthier organism. So do that at the school, do that at your work, do that in your own home. That's really the best thing that you can do in this moment. I'd just like to add to that. Thanks, Damon. Because there are certainly some 
corporations around the world who are really leading the way. And you're right, the transition is inevitable. Climate risk is now something that companies are having to factor into their decision-making. Deforestation risk is another subset of climate risk. But I probably think we can't underestimate the degree to which not all corporations are the same. And some are leading. And some are the reason that our climate politics is so bad because they've spent decades trying to prevent action on climate change because they're profiting from developing and burning fossil fuels and destroying our forests and bushland. And those corporations, they actually have to be forced to act um, because in my experience of 10 years of campaigning on these things, there's a lot of corporations that won't shift unless government creates laws that make them or unless us as consumers make them. Because if you're currently profiting from burning fossil fuels, it's very unlikely that you'll voluntarily change course. So our job as citizens and as consumers is to push our government and our corporations to lead and to tell those corporations getting in the way of progress on climate to get out of the way and to force our governments to listen to us rather than them. I totally agree. And that's why the big polluters in Australia, like the LNG companies like Chevron and Woodside and that, We have to put enormous amount of pressure on them because at the moment they're just given a free pass. It's ridiculous that 15 years ago when Chevron were building their Gorgon plant, they actually were forced to put in place some type of carbon capture and actually ameliorate some of the damage they're creating. The sad thing is that right now we see gas companies planning new LNG plants across Western Australia, across Australia, and there are no such requirements. We've gone backwards. There's no pressure on them whatsoever. They say we'll plant a million trees over however many years and it's absolute bugger all of the footprint mm-hmm. and so we need to keep that pressure up and that's why we need to have a perspective like if I planet a didn't just talk about what we can do you have to put it in the context of how much can be done by those big companies and how much more pressure is needed to put on them because they are not just making a large amount of profit they're not just sometimes multinationals that don't aren't controlled a lot in this country they're also very large donors to the major parties as well uh, we've seen how interconnected they are with government through things like the National COVID Commission. So there's a hell of a lot more that needs to be done to put pressure onto those companies to make change. And, you know, yeah, it's it's good to congratulate those that are doing it. It's great to see that. But there are a few companies that really need uh, a lot more pressure to be put on them, and it's, it's a tough thing to get change out of them. I think it's important to add to that too, and you're right, Craig, that certainly the companies that we've spoken to, we forget sometimes that there are good human beings within those companies and they are sometimes stuck by the parameters of what their company's doing or the investments they've already made. And so I think it's important that we humanise this at all costs and we don't just blanketly say all these corporations are bad because, yes, some of them are horrific, but they also contain people in them that are aware of the destructive nature of their companies and want to get out. And I think, to your point, you know, if you look in our own country, we had virtually no lobbyists in the 1980s. We've now got more than 5,000 in Canberra. So unless we deal with that, the connection between our political system and these companies that you're mentioning, like Santos, people just need to know how closely linked they are. And unless we extricate those things and actually get those donations out of the political system, we're not going to get where we need to go because at the moment they have far, far more clout than they deserve. Can I add to that? I suppose my message for CEOs is start diversifying your portfolios, start diversifying your investments. We can take a top-down and bottom-up approach. And actually the courses I have been speaking about, they actually give you a really powerful sense of what consumer power is, how businesses are formed, 
actually tells you what signals they rely on to break even, make a profit and grow. And I also think there should be more transparency because I think that all of these companies, they already have the figures. There are parts of their marketing strategy that tell you a certain message, but it's up to us to say what land do you take up, as in how much of it are you knocking down trees to build your factory? And all of the components that go into it, they don't go into marketing. So as consumers, it's up to us to know what our power is because a drop in profits, that is a market signal. And it is an extremely powerful market signal. So I'd encourage you to go both ways. Lobby CEOs from the top, not just about taking responsibility and planting trees, which I think is a great idea. And I love that segment on Fight for Planet A, Craig. <laughs> but I also think they need to diversify. That's another thing you could say in those letters. But then also from the bottom as a consumer, find everything out you can with as much time as you have before you buy something. So the next question is from Alphonse, and it's to Damon. How do you help the younger generation to strategise their ways to get positive results in their climate strike or anything they need to do for the government to change their ways? That's a big question. I would say don't underestimate the impact that you're having. I think that your generation's voices are being heard, the kids are being heard, even though you might not get that as a response from our Prime Minister or from other ministers. They are well aware of that pressure that's coming from the ground up. And I would encourage everyone to keep going, for parents to support them. Change historically has never been linear. There's often sort of a build-up of momentum and then there's a random tipping point, whether that's Rosa Parks on a bus or the abolitionists never would have predicted that slavery would have been ended as soon as it was. So I think we're in an extraordinary time. I think we are seeing momentum right around the world. We're seeing these kids take to the street. Yes, it's been put on hold a little bit through COVID, but I think a lot of people have taken this time to reassess what they want the world to look like on the other side of this. And so I would encourage children to keep going and to know that it's working and that at any moment in the next few years, I think, uh, we will have a tipping point. And when that happens, there'll be a flurry of initiatives and policies and activities that, that take place that will be all worth it. So keep going. So the next question is for Imogen Jove from Dan Rotman. The work of VZD is terrific because they provide well-researched solutions. How do you get these to be better known? Well, events like this help, I think. This is probably the biggest discussion group we've had, and that's partly because we can do it live all across the country now. This used to be a small group of people who would gather at Melbourne Uni once a month. So I think seeing these kinds of transformations where we can talk to anyone in the world at the press of a button is just incredible. And those kinds of innovations are just extraordinary and we'll keep doing them more and more. I think that communication role is really important. That very first step I took when talking to my parents and changing their behaviour wasn't as simple as I thought it was going to be. And I think putting effort into understanding where other people are coming from and understanding their needs and their motivations and their values is a really important part of the process. So it's not just about explaining information, it's about really forming relationships and partnerships and bringing people with you so that they take their first steps in these directions as well. So the storytelling component's really important and setting the vision of what you want to achieve is really important and building those networks with people you care about and people in your community, whether that's a physical community nearby or a community of people who have similar interests, it's really important. So hopefully more of that. And yeah, again, like stories like Fight for Planet A and that introduce these concepts to people who haven't been thinking about it for decades is really important too. 
So the next one's for Craig from Raj Vedantam. Is a bottom-up approach like Hepburn Community Wind Park the solution to mitigate the lack of top-down policy leadership and action? If so, can we influence the other councils to invest in similar projects? Yeah, I mean, Hepburn's a great example of a community getting together and finding a solution. It's been so successful and they've now got to the stage where the money they're making from the wind farms, they're reinvesting into solar panels for other parts of the community and that. So it's fantastic to see that. The interesting thing about that is that has happened in 2011 and yet there's been not many examples of that being copied. And that's one of the things that I always find intriguing. I guess it's because I think there's a lot of expertise needed in that. So getting one council to do it and then convincing the next one and making it so they can see that it's easy to do. But, I mean, that wasn't council-driven. It was kind of helped by council, but it was driven by the community there. How we can get more communities like that to do that kind of scale of effort. But even if you don't do that scale, you don't have to put up two massive wind turbines to actually make a difference. I know that in my area there's local groups that get together and raise money for putting solar panels into various places as well. Organisations like BZE and that can make a difference. Making the information available so that when communities do get together and say, we want to make a difference, they can go, well, this seems really hard. You go, no, no, it's not that hard. We've put together this, here's the information, or you talk to this person. It is really important to do that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. It's not an alternative to a top-down. It's We need to kind of do all of those. When it comes to our climate response, it's much like my approach to study. Very much we've left it to the last minute. It's the night before. We really need to pull out all stops now. <laughs> you know, we've got to do everything. So it's kind of... We need top-down, we need bottom-up, we need middle-out. Every type is needed at this point. So let's copy fantastic examples like Hepburn Wind Farms. So um, the next one is for Damon, and it's again from Helen Kinneberg. And it says, Damon, Queensland State Government has brought in the vegetation management laws to prevent land clearing and also $500 million land restoration fund for carbon farming Is that something to be applauded or is there more they should be doing? Yeah, I I think we're at a point where any government policy that is promoting sequestration to soil is a good thing. It's been really lacking in our country and despite that, we're probably leading the world in terms of what our farmers are doing, the innovations that they're doing. It really is world's best practice in a lot of ways. And some of the numbers that are coming through are quite sensational in terms of how much carbon we can sequester into really integrated systems that do involve animals, crops, trees, all these things that can coexist on small patches of land is really exciting. So any way that we can incentivise that, I think it's terrific. We're going to see a carbon market emerge in a few years. In the moment, it's very confusing. It's sort of caught up in bureaucracy. It's very hard for farmers to make sense of it, hard for anyone to make sense of it. That's going to change. And what we're going to see, which is quite exciting, is initiatives where people will be able to track or scan their phone on a food item and they'll see not only the supply chains of where that food's come from, but they'll see the quality of the soil that that food was grown in. So suddenly we'll be paying farmers on vitamin and mineral quality of their food instead of just weight. And that is going to be transformational because then the consumer can send a signal to the farmer about the types of foods that we want and they will change their practices. And thankfully, as we're seeing, these regenerative practices now are far more lucrative than the traditional models because they're using less inputs on their land and the value of their products is higher at the market end. So it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, for revegetation and especially in our country. We have unique soils, we have unique trees, 
We've got incredible trees that we're not utilising, edible trees, and, and again, back to Indigenous practice. So again, this is a really good time. So I would absolutely endorse any government that's going to support that. Uh, of course, we need more. We always need more, but hopefully it will set a precedent for other jurisdictions to follow. And can I just add that goes directly to what I spoke about earlier, which is Queensland reintroducing those deforestation laws, more technically the Vegetation Management Act in 2018, was a result of a huge community campaign over years to get land clearing laws back in Queensland. And we're waiting for the latest data, but we do expect it to have saved tens of millions of hectares of native forest and bushland. And we absolutely need those land clearing laws in place. So they are a very good thing. They're not perfect. There are some loopholes in the laws that definitely need to be closed over time, but they are a very big first step. And the $500 million pledged for the Land Restoration Fund, in my personal opinion, but obviously I'm biased because I helped design it, I think is genuinely nation-leading to tie carbon sequestration with biodiversity and community benefits, I think is the platform that it would be great to see replicated in other states and federally. And I'm going to just chime in to talk about the awareness of Indigenous carbon abatement through cultural burning. I suppose with the bushfires that have just gone and us all mourning the damage and the animals and just horrific breathing it in our noses and just knowing all of us, the fog across the land. The talks that resulted, the abatement schemes that have been studied are actually recognised carbon abatement that, that feed into the carbon market. But I'd also say, you know, we also have that question is focusing on government. And we have mentioned a couple of times about democratic systems. And I suppose I want to remind everyone that we can lobby, but the only mechanism we have to change things is once every three years. And many other countries have opportunities to raise petitions, which, you know, I'm sure everyone on this panel and, and to a our audience have signed so many petitions. And overseas, those petitions have legal standing. They have to be done within a certain number of months and they have to be a certain amount of people. But then that can go to a national vote and things can be changed. And the last time we saw that happen and perhaps felt empowered was the Marriage Equality Survey. It is good to know about all these carbon schemes, but we also need to consider the other mechanisms when government stubbornly won't lead because their business models support fossil fuels. There's a battle within all of the parties, a battle going on about how they respond to climate change issues. And so you don't only have power when it comes to vote as well. You also have power. Writing a letter, it's amazing. Letters have an influence. There's a lot of ways in which you can send a polite letter to your local member to asking them why there's no action. Lobbying is important and money and that kind of stuff. There is documentary filming on that exact topic, but it's not the only influence. Politicians are respond to so many different inputs, we can have an impact by communicating with them, by saying, you know, we want more action here. It's not just our vote. We have a lot of other power when it comes to the political system. And I was also just going to say that the data is evolving really rapidly, so information about these decisions, you know, can be murky at the time, but I think in a few years' time it'll be much clearer what the impact of these choices are locally and you'll know, you know, if your local member makes a decision, you'll know what the impacts are on your environment on your community and on your economy. So you'll be able to hold them to account a whole lot more accessibly, I think. But, you know, it requires being informed and paying attention and getting active. Okay, on to our next question. This is from Sophia. 
do you know an effective way of getting people to act with more urgency? How can we get people to panic react without scaring them? The things that I struggle the most with in trying to make this documentary because I didn't want to do a documentary that just made people fearful. And the problem is, though, that you've got so many people responding in totally different ways. You've got a group of the people that are already absolutely at panic stations and are really feeling anxiety about climate change and feeling terrible about it, and you don't want to push them further. But you've also got a group of people who are kind of like, yeah, I know climate change is coming, but it doesn't really feel like it's here yet. Eh, I'm not so sure. And I think the latest fire season has slightly changed that dynamic, but it's really hard to aim at so many different responses to that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's a real problem. And I think just continuing the message about the effects that we're already seeing now, it feels like we've finally got to a point where it's becoming harder for people to say that, oh, this climate change thing isn't really something. I was expecting a lot more pushback. And the pushback that was there was not generally about, oh, there's no climate change or it's, it was less denialist. We've moved from kind of climate denial to what's called climate delay, where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, climate change is real, but, you know, oh, it's really important that we just do something slowly or the economy is really important. It's about that kind of stuff. And that's actually becoming a – in some ways it's harder to argue against because it's less airy-fairy. I mean, it's less definite. You know, you can't just go, that's climate denial, that's wrong. But in other ways, it has less strength. So I think that people are now responding quite a lot to what I see and feeling like we do need action now. And now, as, you know, as Damon said, we're kind of approaching a tipping point, I think. We're getting a lot closer to that actual moment of the big change happening. I'd just say on that note, the people who are closest to you are the people that you can influence and you can shape their actions and their opinions. So being really clear about how you feel about this to the people who are close to you is probably the best way to have influence, I think. And I would add making the solutions really concrete and the next steps really concrete because fear is really paralysing but having a solution to move forward to is very galvanising and it's kind of standard at this point for me to talk about the fact that the antidote to despair is action and so whatever it is, it might be go and contact that company and ask them to commit to 100% renewable energy or zero deforestation. Or it might be you have a state election, go and get involved in trying to make sure people vote for the parties with the best climate action. Or it might be join your local climate action group to demand change of your local government. I think making clear next steps and making them fun is really important. And fun and interesting is the key words there, I think. So I go with Jess, fun and interesting as possible. So the next question is, how important is it just consumption? I think this one's for you, David. <laughs> you did regenerative bag in 2040. Oh, this is such a complex question, but I'll try and simplify it. I think from the research that I've done and various organisations, the UN, FAO, Project Drawdown, is that absolutely we need to reduce our meat consumption. We have ridiculous amounts of meat that we are clearing land at a fast rate for that meat. What is emerging now, though, are different practices that are able to sequester huge amounts of carbon. In fact, sequester far more carbon than the methane that's being emitted. And that's by carefully managing livestock in a very careful way where they eat certain parts of grasslands and you move them off that bit of grass. The roots grow back quickly and sequester that carbon and put it in the soil. 
But that alone is not a huge sequesterer. But once you start adding these other species in, there's a practice called intensive silvopasture, for example, where you take livestock, you plant a legume uh, in there as well, which is a nitrogen fixer, and you put trees in that system as well. The stats there are quite stunning in the sense that you can actually use the same amount of land that a feedlot uses because they also are growing grain to feed those cows, but you're producing much healthier meat and you're sequestering carbon. Now, we don't have enough land for the whole world to be eating that type of meat, but there are going to be people that can eat that meat. It's much better for them if they want to, but absolutely I think there's unanimous agreement that we need to shut factory farming and not have feedlots for our cattle anymore. But if people are willing to pay for it, there might be types of regenerative meat that are actually beneficial to the planet, believe it or not, but it's not going to be readily available. There are certain lands around the world that aren't amenable to crops that livestock could be used and they can sequester soil into that. But again, it's very careful because it's not to say that we can all keep a clear, better labelled meat in the future. It's going to be labelled as regenerative organic. There's labels emerging from America right now, but it sits in a grey area because absolutely we need to reduce our meat. The type of meat we're eating is terrible. Even these fake meats, to be honest, we've got to be careful there. They're a processed food. Some of them are grown in labs. They're finding even that they need a lot of antibiotics to keep the, the cells alive, which aren't good for us in any way. And even the sort of uh, impossible meats are using huge amounts of land, still growing crops, still using chemicals on that land. But I think the best bet to do is to reduce your meat consumption. Uh, estimates have it about 50 grams a day. You can do that if you can make it regenerative. They are starting to appear. You can find them, biodynamic meats and these other clearly labelled meats. That would be the way to go, but they are a bit more expensive. Oh, well, I, I guess I would add that certainly from the perspective of storing forest carbon and bushland carbon and soil carbon, what's important is the deforestation footprint of the food. So obviously beef in Australia, the Brazilian Amazon, it's beef and also soy. And so I think it's just really important that we look at the way the food is produced and whether or not mass deforestation is linked to that commodity rather than fixating on the particular commodity. So that's just what I wanted to contribute from a deforestation perspective. I think it's a really complex one. It's interesting how we still talk about meat. Like this, meats have very different carbon footprints. It's predominantly red meat we're talking about. It's predominantly cattle and sheep that we're talking about. And one of the interesting things about just St. Damon's say feedlots is one of the things that frustrated me the most when doing the show is you, when you look at something in a solution like asparagopsis, the seaweed that can reduce the methane of cattle. Annoyingly, that's more of a solution if you are actually in feedlots. If you are, for instance, first the solution if you're dairy cows because your cows come in each day and can be fed that. Use a ring across the land and not really seen by people, it's very hard to feed them that. So feedlot is... Uh, feedlot is already sometimes a lower footprint because it basically the, the animals live less time, they have a shorter life and therefore have a short, smaller footprint because of that. So that's why that reduction of how much meat you eat is definitely the best solution for that. If you're a very keen meat eater sitting there going, I will not give up my steaks for anything, I just suggest you say to the government, we should be 300% renewable energy in Australia in the next 10 years so that I can eat on a steak. And that's why at the moment our solutions are kind of caught up in the debate over a very small amount of jobs in one or two sectors. It's probably more linked to the political power of those sectors than really how much they contribute to the economy overall. So, look, yeah, meat is a difficult one, but there are lots of great solutions coming through, as Damien's talked about. And if you, even if you ignore all the emissions that come from the cattle and that, if you can go, well, we at least didn't 
chopped down a massive forest to create this farmland to make these beef, you're already ahead of the curve. I just say that like Australia has so many things going for it in terms of climate solutions. We have this amazing land mass that we can regenerate. We have an agricultural community that's interested in solutions and figuring out ways to do things differently. We have the most abundant renewable sources of energy in the world that we can export to other countries. You know, we can electrify our transport systems. We can do all of these steps and they will improve our communities. They will improve the jobs of people and they'll boost our economy. And we have no better time for making these changes than right now. The problem is really significant, but we are in probably one of the most fortunate positions of any country in the world around embracing the solution. So we're starting to get short on time. Our, the finish of this webinar is 8 o'clock. So I wanted to just thank our panellists for your various expertise and visions. But we'll go around now and get everyone to, to say a concluding remark about what you would like to round up about tonight and about your, your work. Let's start with Imogen. I have to say I hope that this in some small way helps motivate you to take the next step in your path on this journey because if we're all stepping on this together, it'll get us there and it's really great to build the community of people involved. Go ahead, Damon. Thanks for having me today and thanks for everyone who's joined this conversation. I guess in my work I just try to reframe this as an opportunity and I feel quite privileged to be alive in this moment. I think we have an opportunity to change our system and change how we interact with our living systems and not many humans have had that opportunity right through history. So I think be grateful for that you're around in this moment. You're watching an energy transition happen, but you're also going to see one happen in agriculture and other industries as well. And that's, that's a wonderful thing to be alive through. Keep up the hope. Try and find the good stories. Our, our media is cr crowded with all the negative stories, but that sells. Outrage sells. That's the world we're in. Go beyond that mainstream and look in the shadows. That's where the hope is, and that's where all the people are that are doing amazing things. So um. Keep your mind clean by doing that. Don't get it sucked in these other narratives. Who'd like to go next? Craig or Jess? I would sum up by saying ending deforestation in Australia is one of the cheapest, easiest, fastest ways to cut our emissions. And then starting to restore the Australian landscape is this incredible opportunity to save our beautiful wildlife, restore landscapes and support traditional owners and landholders around the country um, and the solutions are totally there they're available now and we should just get on with it yeah definitely it's interesting actually hearing Jess say that because we spend a lot of time focusing some of the things like we talk a lot more about our flights for instance and land clearing is probably four to five times more of an impact in Australia than our flights we often don't talk about things that have the biggest impact Realistically, if you call up your energy provider tomorrow and say, I want to go 100% green power, might slightly increase your bill, might, might increase it like a wine bottle a month, something like that. That'll have a hell of a lot more impact. A lot of the other things that we spend a lot of time debating and that kind of stuff. So look, find the ways in which you can achieve change. And I'm not saying that we can only do it by ourselves. We're not saying we can do it as individuals. or not, not even saying we can just do it as communities, but we need those kind of groups to get together and work hard because cumulatively that makes a massive effect on its own. And secondly, it does have a big political effect as well. It does make it more likely that we see political change happening from the top uh, to help us deal with this problem, which we really need to get onto. Let me put it off a little bit too long. Thanks, guys. 
So I suppose my final remarks are a bit of a shout out to my mob in Tamworth and Bendemeer um, and to ask people to try to, to cross cultures, whether it's Indigenous particularly, but also obviously because I'm biased, but also multicultural views because we actually need as much innovation and as much adaptation and there are so many solutions across cultures and learn as much as you can about the details. Just don't don't take the, this is bad, this is good. Find out why, because then you'll learn about the science and follow Damon and Craig's example and go out of your comfort zone and learn about a field that perhaps you didn't study. And together, there is so much room for hope and so much room for, for great things. So it's been a real pleasure to have this chat. I don't know about everyone else, but it, it's wonderful to see these yarns and to see these stories being told. So from Beyond Zero, thank you for coming along. Please keep in touch. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn. I think we're on Instagram and the wonderful lady behind the scenes, Imogen uh, Butler, uh, and our comms team handle all of that. We'd love to hear from you. And... Keep the energy going. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.